Welcome to the MRC Talks podcast. I'm Hasina Sakrani. In our 2019 Career Inspiration series, we're bringing you 12 stories from inspiring scientists who are working to improve lives through medical research. Each month, we talk to a different scientist to find out how they got there and what makes them tick. This month, Isabel Harding talks to Professor Fiona Watt. She's the director of the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London and the executive chair of the Medical Research Council. I always say there's nothing wrong with being wrong. We can design the experiment, we can do it properly. It doesn't give us the result we expected, but it's still informative. Fiona has always been fascinated by science and nature. From sharing her bedroom with a whole host of animals as a child, she always knew she wanted to be a scientist. Her love of animals led her to study zoology at the University of Cambridge, where she discovered the topic that she's dedicated her career to studying, cell biology. She credits the hands-off nature of her PhD supervisor, Sir Henry Harris, with setting the tone for her career as an independent researcher. As a stem cells expert, Fiona has made many fundamental discoveries, including how skin cells interact with each other and how their normal connections go awry in cancer and skin disease. She was one of the first to discover that processes such as inflammation and physical forces can influence the behaviour of skin stem cells. Fiona's known for her commitment to gender issues, her leadership qualities and her active mentorship of junior scientists. Throughout her career, she's trained more than 50 PhD students. As the talent and skills lead for UK research and innovation, her key piece of advice for junior researchers is to take control of your own career. My name is Fiona Watt. I'm executive chair of the Medical Research Council. And how do you, you're also a scientist, so how do you describe your research to your friends and family? As well as running the MRC, I'm on secondment from King's College London, where I'm a professor and I run a lab that studies stem cells. Very briefly, can you describe your career journey so far, how you got to this place? Uh, I grew up in Scotland, in Edinburgh. I went to Cambridge University, where I really fell in love with cell biology. Uh, Then I did my PhD in Oxford. I went to America for a couple of years to MIT. And that was where I first became interested in studying stem cells in the skin. Um, I came back to Britain and I set up a lab in Kennedy Institute of Rheumatology. Um, After a few years, I moved to um, an institute that was called the Imperial Cancer Research Fund. That's now part of the Francis Crick Institute. From there, I went to Cambridge for a couple of years where I helped set up a cancer institute and a stem cell institute. And then in 2012, I moved to um, the top of Guy's Hospital Tower to set up a new research centre there. I definitely was not looking for another job um, and uh, the attraction of the MRC job is that this is such an exciting time to be a scientist in Britain that I couldn't possibly pass up the opportunity. And looking back, is there a time when you first knew that you wanted to be a scientist? I always wanted to be a scientist. I can't remember uh, any time as a child when I didn't want to be a scientist. Um, so as a small child, I would um, 
had my room, my bedroom was full of um, tanks of newts and frogs and toads. I had goldfish. Um, we had um, dogs, guinea pigs, rabbits. Uh, I've always loved animals, and I became just re really keen to pursue an interest in uh, science. I would also say that um, in our family there was a strong feeling that um, what you worked at should benefit other people. So I, I volunteered as a child with um, in a, a home for people with disabilities. And so I did, I've always wanted to combine my love of science with practical benefit. You're internationally recognised in your field um, for studying the stem cells of healthy and diseased skin. What's your most exciting finding to date? That's a really hard question to answer. Um, I remember when I first discovered a simple method to purify stem cells from the skin. That was certainly very exciting. Um, I think other discoveries that have been exciting uh, include realising that cells in the body called fibroblasts, which most scientists think are rather boring, actually have a very interesting life and characteristics which could potentially be beneficial for, um, if you could harness them, it would benefit for treating scar formation, for example. So those are just two aspects. But, um, you know, so we science progresses by us publishing our findings and along the way, um, there are discoveries we've made where I remember vividly where I was when we first realised what was happening or when we published the paper. So that I've just highlighted two aspects in a very exciting career. It sounds like a very exciting career, everything that you've described so far. <laughs> so to give us an idea of what it's like to work in your shoes, what does your typical working day currently look like juggling these two roles? I've been running the MRC since April the 1st, 2018. Um, and I think normally you would go into a job with some briefing about how it is. But actually, my appointment coincided with the creation of an umbrella organisation called UK Research and Innovation. So really, all bets have been off. I've been trying to get to know the MIC, I've been trying to help shape UKRI um, and the, at a time when there is the new ways of funding science through something called the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, I've been trying to get my head around that. So I sometimes feel like um, a polar bear which is sort of trying to leap from ice flow to ice flow. Um, but so there's, the short answer is there's no typical working day at the moment, but it's never boring. Sounds like there's a lot going on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so thinking about your research, what excites you about your job? I have a passion for discovering how um, stem cells function in the skin and also in, um, in tumours. Um, so I'm excited uh, by finding the answers to 
problems that um, that I set. Um, I'm not doing the experiments myself anymore, but I love it when um, we get together as scientists in the team and we go through the data. So often it's, um, well, I did this experiment, it did not give the result I expected. Troubleshooting, why might that be? And sometimes it takes a while to dawn on you really what is going on. So probably there are fewer aha moments and more kind of a slow realization that you're onto something exciting. And I love it when we sit down and we say, these are the results. Um, what's the story that we could tell? Because sometimes when we try to fill, fill in the gaps in the story, that gives us the ideas for the experiments we should do. Uh, so we tend to think of science as being quite precise, but, but really searching for the truth is an iterative process. And I always say there's nothing wrong with being wrong. We can design the experiment, we can do it properly. It doesn't give us the result we expected, but it's still informative. Is there anything or anyone that inspires you to do your job? Um, scientists often talk about having mentors who were important to them along the way. I would say that I've never had any particular mentor. Um, I think starting out, my PhD advisor, Henry Harris, um, was a good person to work with because he was always more interested in his own experiments than mine. But that kind of... Um, discussion which would often happen quite late in the evening where he was telling me his latest results um, that was that was exciting uh, when I went to Boston and I worked with a man called Howard Green um, he uh, he was really a visionary um, and so learning from him uh, understanding science was good but I would say along the way I have had a number of close female colleagues, mainly in America rather than in Britain, um, who are now probably in their 70s or even their 80s, and understanding from them how doing science worked was, and that feeling of a sisterhood was hugely important to me when I was, especially when I was younger. And you're a passionate advocate for women in science. Yes, yes. Um, I think the landscape for women in science has changed a lot, but there's more to be done. When I was doing my PhD in Oxford, I was the only female PhD student in the department for a while. Now, in our area of science, more than 50% of PhD students are women. If you look at the sort of other end of the pipeline, the proportion of full professors in the UK has gone up from about 15% 20 years ago to about 24% now. So this is all hugely positive, but there is still much more to be done, I think. What's the best career decision that you've made so far? I, I suppose given that I had this passion for science starting out, there, I didn't really make a decision, a binary decision in any way. I think the decision that was hardest for me was when I felt the need to leave the institute where I had worked for 20 years. Um, 
because I really found it hard to decide where to go next. Um, I had stayed in that institute possibly for too long, but that's partly because my children were very young. Um, and trying to make a decision that involved moving anywhere seemed difficult. So that initial decision to leave was difficult. But having made a choice, I found it very easy a few years later to explain to myself what I really wanted and make a positive decision to move rather than, if you like, the negative decision, I've been here too long, I need to move. So for me, that probably that initial move that was the hardest. Can you think back also to what your proudest moment has been in your career so far? <laughs> That's a really difficult question. I um, When I moved to Guy's Hospital in 2012, for various reasons, it took much longer than anybody expected for our labs to be refurbished. It was a multi-million pound project and for the next two years or more we were working in a building site and uh, sometimes often mopping up um, floods that were coming from the ceiling or various places like that um, and I remember around Christmas I suppose two and a half years in I realised that actually the labs were fine. Everybody had gone home for Christmas apart from me and my lab manager. And we realised that we had finally done it. And I burst into tears as I got into the lift to go home that night. So I, that was a very emotional moment. Was I proud? Possibly. I was just relieved because I could see that the vision was, had been executed, if you like. Oh, that must be a brilliant feeling to see <laughs> yes. it all come together and be done. Yes, I'm glad nobody saw me sniffling in the lift. <laughs> My next question was going to be, what's been the biggest challenge in your research career so far? But that sounds like it was quite a challenge. <laughs> well, I, I think that was a matter of being patient. Um, I think a constant challenge for me has been that I can see the potential of avenues of research quite a few years of any, ahead of anybody else. So um, I remember when I first discovered a method for purifying stem cells, I tried so hard to convince the people I was working for that this was an important discovery and we should file a patent. And I just absolutely failed to do that. Um, and so, you know, you fast forward now, many businesses are founded on these kinds of technologies. And so, I have, I sometimes worry that I'm just not convincing enough at explaining people. But on the other hand, now the job of running the MIC is perfect because I'm not trying to advocate for my own research. I'm advocating for the whole sector. And the colleagues who work for the MIC or who we fund are so wonderful and imaginative that in a way, those early frustrations have dissolved. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, so think back right to the start of your career, is there any advice that you'd give yourself? Or you could think about other early career researchers, because <laughs> you're a passionate supporter of um, helping yes. develop um, yes. younger researchers, um, helping people uh, move into different fields. So any advice that you'd give them starting out in their careers? Yes. So when I 
was starting out, I had no doubt about what I wanted to do. It was just the route to doing that. But I think uh, now, if I were talking to PhD students, I, there are two things I would say. One is that it's no longer the case that you choose an academic career or do something else. We're seeing so much flexibility uh, within a career that a PhD could equip you to uh, work in government, for example. You might decide to work in a large pharmaceutical company or in a biotech company. But I truly believe that you can flip backwards and forwards in a way that wasn't possible um, when I was starting out. And then the other thing I would say is to people like the young me, if you want to do science, you can think of lots of reasons why it's hard, it maybe doesn't pay very well, it's uncertain. But um, I would say there's no shame in failing. And if you had the choice of backing out of a career in science because of all the uncertainty or doing it and failing, I would try it and fail because I genuinely have never trained a scientist who failed to achieve that research career that they wanted. And I think sometimes women in particular talk themselves out of a career because they're worried about failure. Is there any overlap between your personal and scientific interests? <laughs> uh, in my personal life, I continue to be fascinated by the living world, by practical applications of science. Um, I realized as a parent that babies are all born scientists. They, they discover the world by exploring. And I think possibly I was too, with my children, too flexible, letting them discover things for themselves. But I think that approach has been important. Um, I don't have any aspirations for my children beyond that they should be happy and productive individuals. And that's because I'm not trying to live my life through their success. Um, I am married to a scientist. We almost never discuss science, but I would say that when there is a really difficult ethical problem, we've been married so long that he is the one person I would try the solution out on. And, I, and the same would be true for him and me. So. Um, we don't go home every night and talk science, but if it's something difficult, then um, his advice is really important to me. Looking to the future now, where do you see yourself in five years' time? It's very difficult to predict where I'll be in five years' time, but I wouldn't be surprised if I was working in America. A lot of my close colleagues in my field are based in the US, um, I find the way science is done in America quite different from the way it's done in Britain. Um, and so it's hard to imagine that I would have any unfinished business here in Britain. Um, but I'm entitled to change my mind. And if you could wave a wand and sort out one major challenge in your field, what would it be? Uh, in my research field, um, the major challenge is to see the practical benefits of stem cell research. So I would like to see cell therapies um, 
rolled out into patient care um, sooner rather than later. And what do you mean by cell therapies? Uh, cell therapies means a number of different things. Typically, we think about transplanting cells um, into the body. So um, many of the exciting new cancer treatments are called immunotherapies, and they involve um, putting immune cells into the body. Um, in my field, it would involve, involve transplanting fibroblasts to resolve scars which have caused um, people to be disfigured and have lack of joint mobility. Um, but it's an exciting field and it's hard to predict where a cell transplantation treatment would work versus a treatment which might involve um, encouraging the body's own cells to uh, regenerate in repair in a more efficient way. And what about for the wider field of science in general? Well, I have this um, huge ambition <laughs> for Britain, which is that we stop seeing our National Health Service as um, as something that uh, we access when we're ill and we change to thinking about how in um, in Britain uh, everybody should be altruistically donating their data to the National Health Service in exchange for information which allows them to manage their own health better and I think that ultimately this would lead to a healthier nation it would reduce the burden on the National Health Service and it would bring together um, scientists across all uh, aspects from medical research um, uh, data analysis into a really new way of um, handling the health of the public of course the flagship for this at the moment or one of the flagships is the um, project that is funded uh, by the MRC with partners called UK Biobank where 10 years ago half a million volunteers agreed to um, uh, donate their data um, to um, help an effort to understand the basis of disease and their DNA sequences with the sequencing effort isn't is by no means complete but already through their um, act, their altruism um, we're finding new markers uh, in their genes which um, predict whether they have for example an increased risk of uh, heart disease so it's a wonderful example of how we can start something as a small essentially academic research project but because we have such a fantastic system in Britain for funding research and for looking after patients, uh, we can really make strides in a way that um, probably you couldn't have predicted even 10 years ago. Thank you very much for sharing your career inspirations with us, Fiona. Thank you, Isabel. Look out for more of Fiona's work on our blog, mlc.ukri.org forward slash blog. To hear more from the stem cell research community, Tune into Stem Cells at Lunch Digested, a podcast hosted by Fiona's Lab. For more information about biomedical career options, check out our map at mlc.ukri.org.
www.ukri.org forward slash interactive framework. If you like what you hear, then please like, share and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your feedback via Twitter at the underscore MRC or on Facebook we're MRC Comms. Tune in to our next episode to hear from technology specialist Mark Scahill on why you should never be afraid to embrace change in your career. This episode was produced by Isabel Harding and presented and edited by Hasina Sakrani. Thanks for listening.